Hello, welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris, and I'm going to be spending the entire podcast episode today on the topic of reparations for slavery, because that is the big topic. And going forward, it's just going to get bigger because the Democratic candidates for president are pretty much all endorsing a version of this, and it's being echoed by even evangelical social justice warriors. So why talk about this? Well, we need to understand this topic, I believe, biblically and also historically as best we can if we're going to respond to the assertions that are being made. And so like a lot of the episodes, this has some apologetics in it. And I could have talked about other things. I thought about doing a synopsis on all the different developments that have been taking place uh, in broader evangelicalism when it comes to social justice. But frankly, I can't keep up with it. The fault lines are drawn, especially since after the Shepherds Conference, Social justice types seem to be very sensitive to being called Marxist or socialist, and a lot of articles to that effect came out this week, and um, I just can't keep up with it. But one of the themes that I did notice was more and more evangelicals are endorsing a concept of reparations, and it is concerning to me. I don't believe that, at least from what I've heard, um, these are biblical concepts that are, this is not restitution in the biblical sense. I'm going to demonstrate that, I think. Um, but I, I've got, I think, a, a great little show for you. Um, it's It could probably have more in it, but it's hard to know where to cut information just because you could go all day talking about this, uh, especially if you're someone like myself who enjoys talking about history and theology. But, uh, but I, I packed in as much as I could. Um, if you've listened to Daryl Harrison, I'm endorsing this, Daryl Harrison's Just Thinking episode on reparations, which came out earlier this week, I think you should. Uh, not necessarily first. It's not like I'm reinventing the wheel, so I'm not covering the same things that he's covering, but I am supplementing them. And so if you've listened to that, um, then you're going to like what I have to say, and I think it's going to add to what he's already said. And if you haven't, and if you don't plan to, well, this still, I think, will be good for you to uh, go through. So before I jump into it, one quick thing. If you are a fan of mine and uh, of the show, I guess I should say, it sounded so narcissistic. If you're a fan of mine, if you're a fan of what I'm doing on the podcast and you go to a, an evangelical seminary and you're concerned about social justice on your campus and you have stories, um, I would love to hear from you, just to know you're in the audience, uh, just to hear your story. So look me up on Gab, on Minds, and then, of course, the traditional ones, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. Uh, I will try to get back to you, and I, I really would like to hear from you, though. So please reach out. And that voice in your head that says, ah, oh, it doesn't matter, he, he doesn't want to talk to me. Yes, I do. So uh, please, uh, yeah, pause the video right now and go send me a message. Uh, leave a comment, something. I don't see the comments as much. Better to send a message. All right, so let's jump into it. Uh, reparations, um, big topic, big topic. And I put together a little slideshow. Sorry for those who are just listening. I'm gonna try to describe what you see here. Elizabeth Warren, fist raised, headline says, Elizabeth Warren backs slavery reparations. And then we got on the left, Duke Kwan, evangelical leader. And he says, you know, the church really needs to be the one doing the reparations because they were the ones that forwarded slavery through their arguments. He's doing this, I believe, at a TED Talk. And then Thabiti Anna Wibley, if you are a Twitter follower of mine, you know the little <laughs> comment that I made in response to this that got a lot of traction. But here's what Thabiti said. I'm sad for folks who hear the word reparations without any specific proposal attached to start exclaiming, blacks just want to steal whites' money. It's a retort that reveals possible idolization of mammon and willful blindness to 250 years of stealing black people themselves. So... Well, you hear, heard it here first. Thabiti is saying, if you don't want reparations, if you're against that, well, we know what God said about loving uh, mammon. Um, you just don't love God, uh, and you're ignorant. Um, so quite the accusation being made there by Mr. Thabiti and Wibley. Now, I'm going to give away one of my biases as I start this. Um, I believe that slavery is a universal condition. In some ways, it's an inescapable condition. Uh, Proverbs calls debt slavery. We have a lot of that in our country. Um, there's obviously spiritual slavery. Everyone's e either a slave to the devil or a slave to God. Uh, in some ways, our, our welfare system and our progressive income tax and other things that we have resemble slavery in some ways. But, but I'm going to narrow this down to, you know, we're talking about slave labor, right? Um, maybe we have that in our prison system today. I mean, again, <laughs> it seems like it's inescapable and most cultures have some version, but 
But when we talk about like the transatlantic slave trade, the African slave trade, um, we're talking about still a situation that I think is a universal human condition. And why do I say that? Well, here's John Thornton in Africa and Africans in the making of the Atlantic world, 1400, 1800. This is a textbook used at graduate schools throughout the country on the transatlantic slave trade, and this is what he says. We must accept that African participation in the slave trade was voluntary and under the control of African decision makers. This was not just on the, at the surface level of daily exchange, but even at deeper levels. Europeans possessed no means, either economic or military, to compel African leaders to sell slaves. Let me read that again. Europeans possessed no means, either economic or military, to compel Africans to sell slaves. John Thornton in one of the textbooks that is used at, in master's programs throughout the country on this topic. Now, um, <laughs> you, I'm already probably getting in trouble with some people for even mentioning that this is the case, but it is. I mean, it's just history. So, I mean, this happened. The slave markets were already set up there when Europeans arrived. This wasn't a new thing in human history. In fact, the word slave, the etymology of it, it's Slav. It's it's white people. It's not necessarily Africans. But the only concept we seem to have in the United States is of the slavery that took place in the United States. And we do need to put this in the broader historical concept, um, I do believe. So Africans are selling Africans. Tribal warfare is going on. Um, and during the Middle Ages especially, Arabs get involved in this. And you can see if you're watching, but if you're listening, I'll describe it. There's uh, some Arabs, some Muslims, and they're going through the desert and they have in shackles uh, some sub-Saharan Africans that they've uh, got as slaves. And the map uh, shows the trade routes, the slave trade routes uh, during the Middle Ages. And none of them are going to the United States. The Europeans haven't gotten involved in this yet. Uh, this is pretty much an African thing. And a Middle East, sorry, a Middle Eastern and African thing uh, before the <clears throat> Westerners ever came down. Now, this doesn't minimize the West's involvement at all, but it, it does at least show that this is, again, a heart condition. A, this is a, a universal condition. Now, here's a map of the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, you can see 5% went to the United States, 35% Brazil, 60% the West Indies, 5% from the Ivory Coast go to the United States. Very interesting, because uh, that's the, what we're so concerned about. But we're, if, if we're going to have an honest discussion about reparations, then we would need to discuss, well, what about Brazil? What about the West Indies? What about the Arab world? Where do they fit into all this? You don't really see a lot of people from sub-Saharan Africa in the, in the Middle East, and there's a reason for that. Most of them died. Uh, not, the rate of death on, on the way to... <laughs> Uh, becoming a slave, and usually that was would mean being in a harem. A lot of them were female. It was about eighty to ninety percent. In the transatlantic slave trade, it's about ten percent. Now neither is good, but eighty to ninety percent is a lot worse. The conditions were much worse, and there was um, families could flourish more in the United States. In fact, if you were part of the five percent that got to the United States, you, in a way you hit the jackpot. That doesn't mean it was good in the United States in every way, but it means it was better than other places because you could have a family. And I mean, our modern situation attests to that. We have descendants of slaves in the United States. In the Arab world, not as much. And so um, so, so this is the situation uh, going on in the African slave trade. When we think in the United States of slavery, uh, generally, the picture that we have in our mind is the picture of this man to the left. His name is Gordon. He's got scars all over his back, and he was uh, found by some Union troops. Um, some say he's, he's escaped. It's a little shrouded in mystery as far as what happened, but clearly something happened to his back, and looks like he was whipped, looks like there could have been hot water, um, abuse. And, and this picture is, I mean, it's gone everywhere. It's in just about every interpretation of slavery when you go to a national park or in a book is that picture. And to the right, we have Simon Legree beating Uncle Tom as an illustration in Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is a fictional work by someone who never actually witnessed slavery firsthand, never traveled south. But uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe um, wrote the novel nonetheless and um, and said she did so from from accounts that she had heard and been passed to her. Um, but, uh, but this is the other, you know, kind of like in pop culture picture that we have of slavery. It's not a complete picture, though. 
And one of the points that I want to make, and, and it's going to be important going forward, I'll tell you why I'm making it, is that we don't want to ignore the abuses within slavery at all. I mean, far be it from me to do that. It, it, absolutely disgusting. I mean, I believe that everywhere slavery was practiced pretty much, it was always bad. Always. <laughs> With the exception, perhaps, of the Hebrew slave system, which was regulated by God, and, and even then humans abused it, I'm sure, but... Um, but, but slavery is not a good thing. Just to, let's be clear. I don't like it at all. I'm really glad that it's gone, like really glad. Uh, and I don't want to minimize the abuse within it, but neither do I want to absolutize the abuse in it and say, that's all it was. There were Christians who were involved in the institution of slavery. There were Christian slave masters who taught Christian principles. Stonewall Jackson even is a good example of this, had his own Sunday school for slaves. And, um, and I could go down a list of uh, people in the United States who championed uh, Christian education and treating slaves with respect and putting biblical parameters uh, into, into the way that they um, interacted with slaves. Uh, we should we should remember that, uh, that those people existed. Now, it's going to be important later on because, well, who pays the reparations? 5% of Southern whites in 1860 owned slaves. 95% did not. Do we go to that 5%? And then of that 5%, well, who, who was doing it according to God's law with, like Robert E. Lee, with the intent of even freeing their slaves, perhaps? And then who was doing it wrongfully and abusing, like Simon, you know, Simon Legree wasn't a real person, but people like Simon Legree. So, so this gets complicated really quick, and I'm about to show you pretty soon why it gets really, really complicated. But, but let's keep going here. So this is the picture that we have in our minds uh, as Americans. Now, we don't have this picture in our minds. We don't have, this is uh, family worship in uh, a plantation in South Carolina in 1863. Now, you can see you have the authority, uh, the, the person that's preaching here, pointing up to heaven with a Bible uh, in church, is a black man. And the slaves are all watching him, and you have the slave master and his family integrated. Now, this wasn't the picture everywhere in the South at this time either, but it did exist. It did happen. And we can't ignore that some of these things did happen. Um, we, we have uh, on the right-hand side, this is, I believe, still hanging in the North Carolina History Museum, uh, but this is a young boy. Why this young boy is wearing a dress? I, it was the style at that time. I don't know <laughs> um, why that was the style, but Clifton Wheat Hunter is the boy's name, and he's you know being pictured with uh, this young slave boy, and they were friends. It looks like it, at least from the picture. Uh, Clifton's father, Thomas, owned 24 slaves in Halifax County, North Carolina, and um, you know, they, they decided to take a family portrait. And, and this wasn't the only time those kinds of things happened. I mean, here's another picture. This is uh, slaves with uh, some kids in the family. Slave, slave boys, uh, looks like um, different uh, workers in the house. And then on the right-hand side, you have a young boy who's a slave and a girl and taking a picture together. Uh, you know, and, you know, at that time, pictures were not cheap. Uh, these This was important to the family to have these pictures. So this is... Um, the other side of the coin, so to speak. This is what does not get a lot of fanfare, but it did happen. Now, to make this a little more complicated, not all of the slave masters were white. Of that 5% of Southern whites that owned slaves in 1860, not all of them, well, all of those were white because <laughs> that's of the white people, but not all the slave owners were white. Here we have the picture of Gordon again. Now, Gordon we don't know exactly who his master was, but it's very possible his master was actually the widow C. Richards and her son P.C. Richards. Widow C. Richards, she was a widow, <laughs> was, um, was a, a black person, and her son was a black person. William Ellison, who's pictured here, is also black, and he had the largest plantation, well, in South Carolina, as far as I know, was one of the largest ones, uh, in 1860 when the war began, and, uh, and black man. So this is part of the untold story uh, of American slavery. We don't really ever talk about this, but 
there were black people who had slaves and there were white people who had slaves. By far more white people. But in 1830, there were almost 4,000 black people owned by almost, or, or sorry, almost 4,000 owners that were black of uh, almost 13,000 slaves, 1830. By 1860, and this is in uh, South Carolina alone, there were 171 black slave owners. That's in South Carolina in 1860. Uh, Native Americans owned thousands of slaves. Um, so, th you know, th this is a, a human condition. Uh, <clears throat> and, and so I, I'm not saying any of this to try to, let's just take the burden completely off of the Europeans who were involved in it. Well, no, they, they were absolutely sinful. Those who abused slaves were sinful, right? Um, but let us not think that every single one of them was an abuser. Some of them inherited slaves. Some, I mean, it would have been cruel for them to, to not take care of them. I mean, it, there was there's a lot of ethical questions that <laughs> uh, should be asked. And every case is going to be different. And I don't think the social justice warriors want to admit this. They want to just paint with a broad brush. And well, if you're white, you owe something to someone who's black. And it's, it, that just is not the way it works. It doesn't break down that way. There are black people who are the descendants of slave owners, whether it's in Africa or even in the United States, or, you know, uh, think about Liberia. Um, when some slaves uh, went back to Africa, they started enslaving each other. So th this is a complicated mess is what it is. And trying to calculate who owes who what is going to be very difficult. I'm going to read for you. This is um, uh, something that I, I find horrifying because this happened over and over. But, um, but, but this is sort of me showing that there is a dark side to this says, my master was so, this is part of the slave narratives by Bill Collins, one of the a former slaves. He says, my master was so cruel to his slaves that there were almost, they were almost crazy at times. This was a, an Alabama slave named Bill Collins in 1846. He said, he would buckle us across a log and whip us until we were unable to walk for three days. On Sunday, we would go to the barn and pray to God to fix some way for us to be freed from our mean masters. Now, to me, this kind of horrific treatment, it's almost unthinkable to think. It's, it's offensive to think that reparations today to some descendant can make up for this. I don't think, you know, they can't. You know, it's not like guilt is just now alleviated because some descendant paid another descendant. Uh, now, again, not minimizing that these things took place, these cruel things, but I'm against universalizing it. The story I just read you is horrific, but it wasn't the only story. Uh, the Slave Narratives, um, 2,000 former slaves, the Works Project Administration uh, under Roosevelt decided to go out and get the stories of these 2,000 slaves. And there's a book called Time on the Cross where Nobel Prize winner Robert Fogel um, does a study. And he demonstrates that, number one, nowhere in the Western Hemisphere were slaves better treated and cared for than in the American South. And then... He really politically incorrect guy, right? And then he goes on to say, but he's a Nobel Prize winner, and he did this extensive study. He said, after studying the slave narratives, he concluded that 60 to 80% of the respondents had only positive things to say about their masters and their life during the slave days. Only positive things. Now, this is my challenge. If you're saying, that's ridiculous, that can't possibly be. I don't know if you're reading, you know, Eugene Genovese. I don't know if you're reading the slave narratives. I would encourage you to read both. I read Roll Jordan Roll by Eugene Genovese, but uh, read Time on the Cross. Go back and actually read the primary sources in the slave narratives and, and do the study yourself. Um, there were some horrible things like the one I just read to you, but there was also those who didn't say anything about anything horrible happening. And they could have because it was much later and there was no threat to their life. And, um, and they could have. So, um, a lot of them talk about, if you read some of them, you get into it, you know, they miss their masters, they're looking forward to seeing their masters in heaven and these kinds of things that their descendants, uh, much of the time, well, <laughs> they would not say. Uh, and it seems to me, it, it's interesting, you get the sense when you read the slave narratives, um, even, you know, here, here's one of my favorite books one, by one of my heroes, Booker T. Washington, I love that guy, uh, was just at his, um, the where he grew up not too long ago, and, you know, he uh, was, you know, his whole family very happy to be freed, 
But then they realized when they were freed that, man, they're going to have to say goodbye to their master. And, you know, we've had so many experiences together and we love that family. And, and there was this, there was a love, at least in his situation. And he talks about the blessing that it was to be brought from pagan nations in Africa and then taught the word of God and becoming a Christian. Um, he would never have known it if it wasn't for this. Now, he doesn't justify it and say, oh, it was, it was right because of that. But what he does do is he says that their, God's sovereignty, his providence, uh, w- worked in such a way that the gospel was brought to him and his family. And he was thankful for that. You don't see the resentment there. You don't see the resentment in the slave narratives. You see the resentment in those who never experienced slavery. That's the interesting part of all of this. Those who actually experienced it were not as resentful. There were some that were, but most of them were not. Uh, Completely different worldview than what we see around us today. Um, I'm going to go through a little more as far as slave conditions. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I I, I do think it's important to get the rest of the picture. Um, In 1860, according to the census, uh, southern black po- population was shown to have increased by 23%. Uh, the northern free black population only increased by 1.7%. Um, 1850 census, uh, it shows that one out of every 1,000 people that were white was deaf, dumb, and blind, insane, or idiotic. In the northern states, one out of every 506 black person uh, of the black people population um, had the same handicaps. And then for southern blacks, it was merely one in 1,464 persons who possess these inabilities. Now you could say there's some bias going on there or something. I don't know. This is all we have to go on from, from the census. Um, it, it, it just says that there were enough masters who were treating their slaves with charity that their population was growing. And that is one of the indications that you can tell if a people is experiencing some measure of success. Um, foreign observers, um, I'm not going to read their quotes, but you might want to check out what uh, Tocqueville Uh, And James Silks Buckingham, who was an English guy, and then Frederick uh, Olmsted from the North said when they went South, a lot of the travel journals in the mid to late, um, well, early to mid, I should say, 1800s were by, some of them were by people that never even experienced what they were writing about. I mean, that was the most popular uh, type of literature, but, but these guys actually did travel and they saw slavery. So uh, read their accounts. Um, and, and see what they said about it. And they were comparing it to what they knew in England, in France, in the North. Um, now, when it comes to Christianity, I'm going to give you kind of the big picture here. Circuit riders would care for the spiritual needs of slaves. Uh, I mean, that that's just true. Uh, you may not like it, but it is true. This is from John Blassingame in the Slave Community book he wrote. He said, white ministers emphasized oral instruction, memorization, interrogatories, and singing in their efforts to Christianize the slaves. Slaves memorized the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and many aspects of the denomination's liturgy. Ministers, bishops, and masters often questioned the slaves to make sure they understood what had been taught. And when it came time to go to a church, slaves exercised their own choice, demonstrating their autonomy. Slaves catechized by Episcopalians or Roman Catholics persisted in joining Baptists and Methodists. So it's very interesting that... Um, the you see this on the frontier too to an extent but slaves generally did not go with the mainline denominations they and they and they had this mixture of their own kind of their own style i mean you see that even to this day they had their own style and they sometimes formed their own churches now discrimination is part of the story of why that happened but there is another part of the story they tended to worship a little differently and they formed their own communities uh in some ways and so uh, this is where it started, not downplaying discrimination. It happened. Um, but there's there's more to it than just that. Again, um, here's this is a fascinating uh, quote. This is from uh, <clears throat> an address to Christians throughout the world by 96 ministers in the South, 1863. This is during the war between the states. Listen to this. Most of us have grown up from childhood among the slaves. All of us have preached to and taught them in the word of life, have administered to them the ordinances of the Christian church, sincerely love them as souls for whom Christ died. We go among them freely and know them in health and sickness, in labor and rest from infancy to old age. We are familiar with their physical and moral condition and alive to all their interests. And we testify in the sight of God that the relation of master and slave among us, however, we may deplore abuses in this 
as in other relations of mankind, is not incompatible with our holy Christianity, and that the presence of the Africans in our land is an occasion of gratitude on their behalf before God, seeing that thereby divine providence has brought them where missionaries of the cross may freely proclaim to them the word of salvation. And the work is not interrupted by agitating fanaticism. They're talking about northern abolitionists right there. <laughs> The South has done more than any people on earth for the Christianization of the African race. The condition of slaves here is not wretched, as northern fictions would have men believe, but prosperous and happy. Now, some of you might think, oh, they're just telling lies. Um, there, there's so many things to back up some of the things that they're saying, though, and this is where you have to be careful. It, it's a nuanced picture. There's, it's, there's a big spectrum here and you can't just focus on one shade if i just read that and said that's all there is to slavery then i would be focusing on one shade um but there, there's a bunch of ministers almost a hundred of them that signed this thing uh you know i could go on um, a methodist paper in 1851 uh, after cotton prices had dropped told masters not to overwork their slaves uh uh, Southern Episcopal Bishop John, George W. Freeman said, It is the duty of masters not only to be merciful to their servants, but to do everything in their power to make their situation comfortable and to put forth all reasonable effort to render them contented and happy. Reverend A.T. Holmes, uh, in a sermon that became published in, the Southern in a Southern Baptist publication entitled The Duties of Christian Masters, said, Equity pleads the rights of humanity. And in the uh, conscientious discharge of duty, prompts the master to such treatment of his servant as would be desired on his part were, that, were those positions reversed. Um, I could go all day. I've got tons of other ones uh, written down here by different Christian publications, denominational publications, pastors, all saying the same thing. Listen, slave masters, you better regulate yourself and treat your slaves according to biblical standards. Uh, according to the slave narratives, if you do... Um, uh, this is, I believe this is by Fogel. Um, I can't remember where I got this, but it, someone did a study and they said that 15% of the Georgia slaves who had heard antebellum white preach, uh, antebellum whites preach, recalled admonitions to obedience. So you would think that number would be higher if what the social justice warriors are telling us is true, which is that's the only time they ever used the Bible was to just compel obedience. Well, yeah, they did, they did preach what the Bible said about it, but you had only 15% of Georgia slaves who had heard antebellum whites preach that. Really? Only 15%? Doesn't sound like it was preached maybe as much. As, and of course, different regions are different, but, um, but there's a bigger picture. Again, paint and color. Don't broad brush. Now, I, again, have to reiterate this probably like five times. I think slavery is terrible. I think it's great that it's gone. I don't want it coming back. Good riddance to it, right? There are a lot of abuses within it. But I would never make the mistake of saying that it's not possible for a Christian in that society who, let's say, inherited slaves to function in a way in which, um, you know, he could be a Christian, function in a way in which that the slaves could be educated. And um, even if he was going against the law, like Stonewall Jackson was, educated, um, taught Christianity, uh, thriving, I mean, that is possible, and it did happen in some circumstances. It would be wrong for me if I lived in a society like our society, let's say, where the institution of marriage is as horrible as it is. We have no-fault divorce. Um, you know, Half of all mar marriages end in divorce, right? And there's a lot of abuse in marriage. And for me to say, you know what? Marriage is a horrible institution because look at all the marriages and look what's happening and look at all the battered wives. That would be wrong of me to broad brush and say, well, marriage is just wrong. Um, the system of marriage is not wrong, the institution, and, but there are some horrible people out there that have really been abusive in the marriage situation. Now, I think the slavery situation tends to lend itself more to that, especially because of some of the laws in our country, um, depending on the region you were in, they were not in conformity with biblical standards, and a lot of the Southern clergymen knew this. Um, but you could individually on an individual level regulate yourself and behave in a way that honors god just like in our culture with the institution of marriage even though i mean homosexuals are getting married now but you know what you regulate your marriage according to the law of god and function in a way that honors the lord and, and you find especially in the new testament a lot of the, the passages that deal with marriage um, and relationships between parents and children they also include relationships of masters and slaves. 
there's about as much, if not more, said about the relationship between a master and a slave as there is between uh, a husband and wife in the New Testament. So um, very important for us, I think, to get the full picture uh, of what exactly was American slavery. Now let's read some scripture on this. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render services to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same thing to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Now, why read that verse? Why, why talk about uh, what the New Testament has to say about slavery? Well, the reason I started in the New Testament is because Biblical slavery was not being practiced during Paul's time. In fact, Roman slavery, I think you could very well easily make the argument, was more brutal uh, than American slavery was. And yet, this is what Paul says. Uh, it didn't have to be brutal if you had a Christian master, right? But, but it could be. And, and Paul does not say, start a revolution. He doesn't say, uh, you know, we just there needs to be reparations. We need to get you know get rid of slave uh, slavery and then have reparations. He he doesn't do any of the things that social justice advocates would want to see happen. He tells slaves to be obedient to their masters, and he tells masters to treat their slaves in a way that honors the Lord. This is in a pagan slave system. Now. I'm not going to go through everything the Bible has to say about this, but I think you know that pretty much <laughs> that pretty much creates a problem for social justice advocates. If we're going to follow the example of Paul uh, and of Christ, who even used uh, slaves in his parables, slavery as a, an example, we're not going to come to the same conclusions that they're coming to necessarily. Exodus twenty-two one through four. I want to read this because I want to get into this idea of restitution. Should there be reparations? Let's say slavery is a sin. And because in many cases, there was abuse. It was horrible. So what should we do now that we're downstream from this? Well, Exodus 22, 1 through 4 talks about restitution. In fact, the whole chapter pretty much talks about restitution. But we're just going to read these first four verses. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun is risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owes nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If what he sold, stole is actually found alive in his possession, whether an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. Now, why... Why pay five times if he sold if if the ox uh, is sold or slaughtered, and then why pay you know two times uh, if it's in his possession? Well, it's because ox and sheep give you that's your means of livelihood. So you're losing much more than just an ox or a sheep. You're losing food <laughs> for your family. Um, I want to focus on verse three though for a minute. What happens if someone steals? and he can't make restitution. What happens to him if he owes something and he can't pay it? It says, then he shall be sold, verse 3, for his theft. He shall be sold for his theft. Well, this was part of biblical slavery. If you couldn't make a payment, well, you're going to become a slave to that person until you can pay it off. Now, I didn't write that. God wrote that. <laughs> so you see the, the problem that we're already coming into if we want to say that slavery is the the um, existence of it in and of itself is cause for restitution in fact god is using slavery as a means by which restitution is paid in this verse so what's the solution if you have wronged someone and well they're not around to pay it uh, to receive payment i guess from you uh, let's read what numbers 5 5 through 10 says then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against the Lord, and the person is guilty, then he shall confess his sins which he has committed. And he shall make restitution in full for his wrong, and add to it one-fifth of it, and give it to him who he has wronged. 
But if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution which is made for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priests, besides the ram of atonement by which atonement is made for him. Also, every contribution pertaining to all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they offer to the priest, shall be his. So every man's holy gift shall be his. Whatever any man gives to the priest, it becomes his. A few things to realize about this. You have someone who wants to make restitution. They're still alive. They're still alive while they're doing this. Um, it's not their great-great-grandchildren who are doing this. It's them who's doing this. If they can't find, if there's, if there's no relative to give it to, then it goes to the Lord. It seems to me, because th th this is something between them and God more than it is between them and the other person. It's both. But if the other person's not around, then they've still done a wrong and they're going to pay to the Lord for it. I think it's striking, though, that you don't find an example of this generationally. This is someone who's alive who has wronged someone else, and it's on an individual level. They're voluntarily doing this. This isn't government forcing them to do it. They are doing it. Now, let's, let's move on. Let's look at um, another verse here, which I think also pertains to this. We're going to jump back to the New Testament. I put a picture here of a Roman slave market. Now, here's the reason I've put the picture there. I'll tell you when I read the verse. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Now, these are some of the general commands that are used to say, hey, look, it's not loving to have a slave, so um, th therefore it's a sin, because that's the general principle. Now, when Paul said this, what was the context, historically speaking? Well, that picture gives you the context, historically speaking. There were slave markets open in Rome when Paul said this. Owe nothing to anyone? So did Christian slave masters owe something? Did they owe reparations to anyone, to their slaves? Well, Paul doesn't specify that, but did they? I think we'd have to say no. And the reason that we'd have to say no is because this was the historical context Paul was writing in. And if you recall another letter in which Paul sends Onesimus, a slave, back to Philemon, Paul does not force Philemon with spiritual authority to free Onesimus. Uh, he doesn't say that you owe Onesimus. Um, he, he wants him to free him, I think, but there, there isn't a moral obligation there to do so. Very interesting. This was pagan slavery in Paul's time. And if there was a time for reparations to come up, that's where it would have come up, and it doesn't come up in Philemon, and it doesn't come up in Romans, where he's talking to people who would have read this, who would have owned slaves, some of them. So that's the New Testament. Now, I'm going to jump uh, once again to another principle that I think is the heart of the matter, Ezekiel 18.20. The person whose sins will die, the son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity, the righteous of the righteous will be upon himself. Righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself. And the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. You are not responsible for what your great ancestors did. You're just not. Um, you bear the punishment for your own sin. And that really is the crux of this matter. Uh, I, I, I do think there is another issue going on, obviously. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gone through all that history. I think you do have to answer the question, is slavery a sin? And what I mean by that is the relationship between slave and master sin in every circumstance. You say, well, there was man capture going on in the American slave system. Well, yeah, well, who was doing it? Okay, you know, the Northeastern uh, vessels that went there and, and shipped slaves all around the world, maybe they were doing some of it, but it probably really wasn't them as much as it was those in Africa who already had the slave markets set up. Those were the ones, those were the people that were primarily doing the man capture element in this. Now, it doesn't mean that taking part in it is a good thing, but um, there's a lot of systems that we take part in that we're downstream from the evil, and we do not bear the iniquity of that evil in and of ourselves. 
And I'm going to give you some examples of that. I could probably go all day with examples. I don't want to do that. You know, every time a hundred dollar bill, I guess, comes into my hand, that's been drug money at some point, which I'm sure it probably has. I don't know how many dollar bills have a trace of cocaine, but I've heard it's quite a bit. Um, but, but some more umbrella has just came to my head. So I shared it, but some more, um, relevant examples to, to show the complexity of this. I am an American who pays taxes. Some of my taxes go to organizations like Planned Parenthood. How complicit am I in what is going on at Planned Parenthood? It's a question worth asking. I'm going to start raising questions rather than answering them because I think they need to be struggled through. I've, I've answered some things. I've shed some light on things, but I think it, you know, Jesus asked a lot of questions and I think it's good to really think through some of these things. Um, how about this question? I am a descendant of those who fought in the war between the states, both on the North and the South. My Southern forebears, um, in fact, for a while, it was hard to trace my family history because General Sherman came and burned the church where the records for the family were held. I have relatives who died in that conflict. Um, you know, as far as I know, um, you know, they, they, they were dirt poor, uh, you know, people today might have called them white trash. No slave owners in my family. Uh, ironically, um, my wife, who's from the North, uh, does have a slave owner in her family, but None of my family members on either the North or the South owned slaves. And yet they were, their churches were burned. Sherman's army left a devastating path. Um, I'm sure destroyed their farms and, and, you know, raided whatever they had to live on. Do I get reparations for that? What about the people of Columbia, South Carolina, who had their whole entire city burned to the ground? I mean, read some of the accounts of what happened in Columbia, South Carolina, uh, union soldiers, gang raping, um, slave girls, ripping earrings out of, you know, the ears of women, um, in the town, uh, raping, you know, the white women in the town, um, you know, horrible abuses happened in Sherman's March. Now, do, are those people owed something now? Some of them weren't even behind the war effort necessarily. What do you do with that? How, how do we cut this cake that we're going to divvy up with reparations? Am I owed anything? One of the things that social justice advocates, I think, run into is reality. They, they kick against the goads of reality. And it, it's, it's a problem uh, because these, these issues are, are very complex. If we want to take this outside the United States, let's go to, um, let's go to I'll, I'll show you some pictures. Let's go to some other places for those who are uh, watching. Uh, on the top left, we have a picture of the Armenian Genocide. Horrible. Uh, what do we do about that? Uh, on the bottom left, um, this was uh, the situation that happened in uh, Rwanda. How do, we, how do we think through that? Who owes who what? I mean, uh, you have Houthis that were, were extremists who went against the Tutsis and then also some more moderate Houthis and Belgium soldiers. And the UN didn't intervene. Does the UN owe something on this? Uh, on the right, you have the rape of Nanking. What about what the Ch Japanese did to the Chinese before and during the second, well, really during the second world war? Um, you take this out of this country and this gets complicated and you want the church to figure this out. So if you have a Japanese person coming to your church does he now have to pay money to the Chinese person coming to your church? Does the Tutsi have to pay money uh, to um, Belgian soldiers that, or, or I'm sorry, I should say the, I'm getting these words wrong. Uh, the Houthis, there we go. Do they have to pay money to the Tutsis or the Belgian soldiers? Uh, do the Armenians who are in your church, uh, do they, you know, need to be paid by the Turks? And if so, how much, how much? What if uh, the Turks weren't involved in the genocide, but they just happened to be Turkish? They were part of a country that did this. Um, it, it gets so complicated. Uh, South Africa has got to be one of the most complicated situations because there you have multiple tribes, um, half of which I can't even pronounce. You have the British, 
uh, oppressing the Afrikaners in the last like you know 200 years. You have the Afrikaners and the British oppressing, and the the apartheid government oppressing uh, uh, the the blacks, and then you have the blacks now oppressing the South Africans uh, that are white. And, and there's tribal warfare involved in this, and it's, it's so complicated, there is no way you're going to be able to divvy up this pie. No way. How do you create a balance sheet uh, that factors in everything? Uh, here, here's another question. In our situation in the United States, how do we create a balance sheet? Do we factor in current welfare um, programs? Do we do we put that into our calculation or um, or aid that's gone to Africa? Does that go into the equation? Uh, does affirmative action and go into the equation? Is that part of reparations? You would have a lot of calculating to do, and then figuring out. You know, I'm a white person, but no one in my family ever owned a slave. Where do I fit into this? Uh, I wouldn't owe any reparations, right? One of the things you have to understand. This is an assumption about. That, that social justice advocates have is that systems of oppression need a systematic answer to correct. Systems of oppression need a systematic answer to correct. And this is why it doesn't matter how bad you think slavery was if, if you're not willing to apply the solutions that the social justice advocates give you. Um, I agree. Bad stuff happened during slavery. And you know what the solution was? Well, what the solution ended up being, they were freed. Eventually, the slaves were freed. And beyond that, um, today we, we put in programs. I don't agree with all the programs, but programs have been put in place to compensate. There's a call for more. And I, I have to wonder where the motives for this are. Um, I think the assumption that they're coming with, again, is that this is a systematic problem. You hear the word all the time, systematic racism. It's still systematic racism. They don't see, they don't locate this sin as a human heart sin, abuse within slavery. They don't see it as a human heart thing. It's a system problem. And so you need to adopt our system. It's always an argument for a new system. And we have to reject that. We have to reject the systematic argument. Uh, slaves were freed and we have laws on the books now that you can't discriminate and um, you know, show me the racist law. I've said this many times. Show me the law that is enslaving, that is racist, that, uh, you know, if you can show it to me on the books in black and white, man, I'll stand with you for justice. That's wrong. But if there is no law like that and you're just saying over and over that it's systematic racism and um, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time because I think there's a sneaky... A sneaky thing going on what what you're doing is you are trying to replace the current system let's face it it's it's uh, not as free market as it once was but you're trying to transition it from being more free market to less free market you want more government programs you want the government to be in charge of divvying up the pie so to speak and I think there might be some bad motives. Some of the people doing this are ignorant, but there's some bad motives behind it as well because it's going to reward people. So there's going to be a third party that's going to be divvying up the pie, and they're going to be getting the biggest share, and that's the government. And if it's in the church, it's going to be those in the church who are behind it. They stand to benefit more than anyone else. There's a political move here, and they're playing on the guilt that people have. Uh, you want to call it white guilt, you can. You want to call it southern guilt. You want to whatever you want to call it. Um, that's the what they're using, and it's despicable to use that. Um, Christ has taken away any guilt that we have, and as far as I know, no one alive today participated in the slavery or abused any slaves, uh, because that has not been around in this country. Unless you know you were part of sex slavery, in which case, confess it to the Lord. Go to Him. Right? That's what the gospel is all about. But holding sins of the past over people's heads perpetually without any end in sight is a recipe for a race war. And if that's what you want, that's what you're going to get. I don't want it. I want oneness in Christ with my, my black brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know what? In this country, I didn't even mention this, but there's been a lot of other minorities that have been treated pretty awful. Uh, the Chinese... Um, even the Irish Catholics when they came over, uh, Jewish people. Um, I can give you story after story from upstate New York about uh, things related to that. And you know what? Um, there's not a huge push for giving them reparations, <laughs> but there is for 
uh, for slavery for some reason. Um, I, I think there's political motives behind it, and, and that's the reason. But I want to I be one with my, my brothers and sisters who are of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And one day we will be around the throne of Christ. As a, a final warning, look what happened to Germany after World War I when they were required to do reparations. It led to the rise of Hitler in World War II. So if you want to follow this reparation stuff, think through what the implications might be and the resentment from the other side. There's going to be a pushback. And uh, it's not pretty. I think forgiveness is better. I think um, letting go of some of these things and giving them to Christ is better. I think following biblical law is better. And the Bible does not support what social justice advocates are trying to further through this reparations tool. It is not biblically based. You cannot support it based on Zacchaeus. You cannot support it based on what the Egyptians uh, gave voluntarily because God, com- well, God compelled them to. He, he put the desires in their heart for them to do so um, to the Israelites when they were leaving Egypt. Uh, you can't use these examples. They don't work. Look at the, the clear passages of Scripture that talk about restitution. You're not going to find this generational uh, restitution thing going on. Um, so uh, that's really all I have for today, at least, on the topic of reparations. I hope you found that educational and gave you something to think about, even if you don't agree with all of it. I hope it gave you something to think about. And uh, Well, next week is a new week, and um, I may be talking about some of these social justice advocates trying to distance themselves from socialism and Marxism, or I may be talking about the gay Christian movement, especially the celibate gay Christian movement, because I think they're needs to be a biblical answer to that. And um, I, so, so probably one of those two things. We'll find out, uh, see what happens next week. I mean, every day, it seems like a new thing is happening on the social justice front, so who knows? But I uh, hope you enjoyed that. God bless. Bye now. of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.